Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'm in conversation with a physicist turned computational scientist who applies machine learning to a wide range of research problems, including nanotechnology. Also in this podcast, Physics World's Tammy Freeman meets a scientist who has created an award-winning medical implant that could help regulate the blood pressure of people with spinal cord injuries. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by ISEG, which specializes in the development and production of high-voltage power supplies, especially for research, science, and large experiments. By using modern resonant converter technology, ISEG delivers very efficient and high-precision power supplies in different form factors, with excellent electrical parameters and very low ripple and noise. These supplies include high-precision source measure units, detector bias supplies, DC-DC converters, AC-DC power supplies, and multi-channel high-voltage systems. For more information, please visit ISEG's website at iseg-hv.com. Amanda Barnard is a senior professor in the School of Computing at the Australian National University, where she is also deputy director and computational science lead. Amanda began her career as a physicist, but has since broadened her research interests to encompass many aspects of computational science, including the use of machine learning in nanotechnology, material science, chemistry, and medicine. Amanda joins me down the line from Canberra. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. A pleasure to be with you. So, Amanda, can you give us a flavor of what you do as a computational scientist? Yes, that's a great question. The computational science in general is the design and use of mathematical models to analyze computationally demanding problems that are experienced in lots of areas of science and engineering. And this includes advances in computational infrastructure and algorithms that enable researchers across these different domains to perform large-scale computational experiments. Computational science, if you will, it involves research into high-performance computing, not just research using a high-performance computer. And a lot of the time we spend on algorithms and trying to figure out how to implement them in such a way that makes best use of the advanced hardware. And that hardware is changing all the time. This includes both sort of computational or conventional simulations based on mathematical models that are developed specifically in different scientific domains. So a computational chemistry that's developed by chemists or physics that's developed by physicists. We also spend a lot of time using methods in machine learning and artificial intelligence, as you mentioned, uh, which is an interdisciplinary area because most of them were developed by computer scientists. And this enables a whole bunch of new approaches to be used in all of these different sciences. In, at a sort of fundamental level, simulation was born out of theoretical, out of the theoretical aspects of each of our areas and sort of added with some convenient levels of abstraction enabled us to solve the equations. But 
when we developed all of those theories, they were sort of an oversimplification of the problem. And that was done either in the pursuit of, you know, mathematical elegance or just, just being practical. Machine learning has the advantage of enabling us to recapture a lot of the complexity that we've lost when we derive those beautiful theories. But Unfortunately, not all machine learning works well with science. And so computational scientists spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to apply these algorithms that were never intended to be used for these kinds of data sets and to overcome some of the, the problems that are experienced in the interface. And, and that's, that's one of the exciting areas I like. And Amanda, you began your career as a physicist. What made you make the move to computational science? I did begin as a physicist. I think it's a great starting point for virtually anything. I think physicists can do virtually anything. I think I was always on the path to computational science. I maybe didn't realise it. But from my very first research project as a student, which used computational methods, I was, I was instantly hooked. I love the code. Uh, all the way from the code to the final results, I, I kind of instantly knew that supercomputers were destined to be my scientific instrument. Uh, it was exciting to think about, you know, what could a material scientist do if they could make perfect samples every time? Or what could a chemist do if they could remove all contaminations and do perfect reactions? What could we do if we could explore harsh or dangerous environments without risk of injuring anyone? And more importantly, what if we could do all of these things simultaneously, on demand, every time we tried? Well, supercomputers are the only instrument that enables us to do that. And I find that the beauty of them and what captivates me most using this instrument is not that I can reproduce what my colleagues can do in the lab, but that I can do everything they can't do in the lab. So from the very early days, my, my computational physics was on a computer, my computational chemistry then evolved uh, through now to materials, materials informatics, and pretty much now exclusively machine learning. But I've always focused on the methods in each of these areas. And I think uh, a foundation in physics enables me to, to think very creatively about how I approach all of these other areas computationally. And you mentioned machine learning. What is machine learning and how do you use it in your research? Most of my research is now machine learning, probably uh, 80% of it. I still do some conventional simulations, um, and I use these two approaches because they are very different and they give me something very different in my science. So uh, simulations fundamentally are a bottom-up approach. We start with some understanding of a system or a problem. We run a simulation, and then we get some data at the end. Informatics or machine learning is a top-down approach, we start with the data, we run a model, and then we end up with a better understanding of the system or problem. Simulation is based on rules. That's, you know, our theories, our science, whereas machine learning is based on experiences and history. Simulations often, a lot of them are largely deterministic, although there are some, uh, some examples of stochastic methods such as Monte Carlo, and machine learning is largely stochastic, uh, although there are some examples that are deterministic as well, but for the most part. With simulations, I'm able to do very good extrapolation 
uh, a lot of the theories that were derived that formed the foundation for simulations enable us to explore areas of a configuration space or areas of a science problem that we haven't observed any data or any information. Whereas informatics is really good at interpolating and filling in all the gaps. It's very good for inference. The two methods are based on very different kinds of logic. Simulation is based on an if-then-else logic, which means you know if I have a certain problem or a certain set of conditions, then I'll get a, a deterministic answer or else, well, computationally it'll probably crash if we get it wrong. Whereas machine learning is based on an estimate-improve-repeat logic, which means it will always give an answer. That answer is always improvable. Uh, but it may not always be right. And so that's uh, another difference. And uh, as I mentioned before, um, interdisciplinary and interdisciplinary simulations are interdisciplinary, a very close relation to the domain knowledge and relies on human intelligence, whereas machine learning is interdisciplinary uh, using the models developed outside of the original domain and is agnostic to domain knowledge and relies heavily on artificial intelligence. So this is why I like to combine these two approaches. And, and what machine learning in particular I think is important for science is that before the advent of machine learning, scientists had to pretty much understand the, the relationships between the inputs and the outputs. Between the, They had to, actually had to have the structure of the model predetermined before we were able to solve it. It kind of means we need to have the answer before we can solve for an answer. Whereas using machine learning... Uh, because the idea is that machines use statistical techniques and historical information to basically program themselves, what this means is that we are able to develop the structure of an expression or an equation and solve it at the same time. That represents an acceleration of the scientific method, and it's another reason why I like to use it. The kind of machine learning I use uh, are quite diverse, there's a lot of different flavors and types of machine learning, just that there are lots of different types of computational physics or in experimental physics. I use unsupervised learning, which is based entirely on input variables, and it looks at developing hidden patterns or trying to find representative data. And that's useful entire for materials and nanoscience when we haven't done the experiments to perhaps measure a property, but we know quite a bit about the input conditions that we put in to develop the material. Unsupervised learning can be useful in looking at finding hidden patterns such as similarities in our high-dimensional space. I also use supervised machine learning to find relationships and trends, such as structure property relationships, which are important in materials and in nanoscience. And this includes uh, classification, where we have a discrete label. So we already have maybe different categories of nanoparticles, for example, and we want to be able to, based on their characteristics, automatically uh, assign them to either one category or another and make sure that we can easily separate between these classes based on input data alone. Or um, another example is regression, and that uses continuous variables. And this looks at relationships such as a temperature-dependent relationship and being able to predict uh, the an output property or a, a, a target label, as we would call it, uh, by evaluating a cost function.
I use statistical learning and semi-supervised learning as well. Uh, statistical learning in particular is quite useful in science, although it's not widely used yet. Uh, it We think of that as uh, causal inference that is used in medical diagnostics quite a lot. And this can be applied to effectively diagnose how a material, for example, might be created rather than just why it is created. Uh, I don't really use a lot of reinforcement learning, which is another type of machine learning that's designed to find hidden behaviours and strategies as an agent navigates an environment. And so, Amanda, your research group includes people with a wide range of scientific interests. Can you give us a, a flavour of some of the things that, that they're studying? Yes, uh, it's very diverse. And that when I started in physics, I never thought that I'd be surrounded by such an amazing group of different scientific areas and, and inks and smart people. So the uh, computational science cluster at ANU has a team that includes environmental scientists, earth scientists, bio, uh, computational biologists and bioinformaticians, a genomicist, uh, computational neuroscience, quantum chemistry, material science, plasma physics, astrophysics, astronomy, engineering, and me, nanotechnology. So we've got we're quite a diverse bunch. Uh, to give you an idea of uh, some of the work that's going on, I thought I'd maybe mention some very small things and then maybe some very big things. Uh, Giuseppe Barker is a junior academic in the school who is in the area of quantum chemistry. And his work is developing algorithms that underpin the kind of quantum chemistry software packages that are used all around the world. Uh, so his work is uh, focused on how we can leverage new processes such as accelerators and how we can rethink how large molecules can be partitioned and fragmented so that we can strategically combine massively parallel workflows, so being able to do much more sophisticated quantum chemistry and embarrassingly parallel workflows that enables us to break it up into smaller pieces so that we can do bigger molecules. And his work will facilitate the use of highly accurate post-hydrofog methods to be applied to large biomolecules, for example. Uh, he could also help us to use supercomputers more efficiently, which saves energy. And for the past two years, he's held the world record in the best scaling quantum chemistry algorithm. So he's to be congratulated. Uh, also on a small scale, uh, small in terms of the, the scale of the, the science, uh, is Min Bui, who's a bioinformatician, and he works in the area of phylogenomics. Uh, he's working on new statistical models for phylogenomic systems such as partitioning models, isomorphism-aware models, distribution tree models and mixture models, and he's looking at applications in areas that include photosynthetic enzymes or deep insect phylogeny uh, transcription data, and has done work around looking into uh, algae as well as bacteria and viruses such as HIV and COVID-19. Uh, a lot of his work has been captured in a software package that has, he's been developing since 2011, so more than 10 years now, called IQTree. And it has tens of thousands of users worldwide. And uh, he's actually one of, for the last two years, has been a highly cited researcher worldwide for his work in uh, phylogenomics and the IQ tree software. 
So now flipping to something big, uh, final example is Chuan Deng, who is also a junior academic in the group, and he is a mathematician. He's working on mathematical modeling and simulation for um, large-scale media such as oceans and atmosphere dynamics and looks at modeling Antarctic ice flows. And his work uses uh, scientific computing and numerical solvers, uh, including parallel uh, computing and preconditioners and PDE solvers such as FEM, uh, finite element methods, sorry, uh, that many people might be familiar with. And uh, so that, that, and also machine learning a little bit as well. And so there's a kind of a, an example of the, from the very, very small to very, very big, uh, of the different kinds of applications that can be all clustered together in computational science. I think the best part about it all is that we sometimes discover where a problem experienced in one domain has actually been already solved in another. And when would a computational neuroscientist ever work with a plasma physicist? It just wouldn't normally happen. But even more exciting is when we discover scientific problems that are experienced in one domain are actually also experienced in another. And if we solve them, our work can scale super linearly. One solution, multiple um, areas of impact, and that's, that's the best. As well as working with your research group, Amanda, you're also serving as deputy director of the Australian National University's School of Computing. C can you tell us a bit about that role? Yes. Well, unfortunately, it's largely administrative, but the best part is that I have the opportunity to work with not only an amazing group of computer scientists across uh, data science, uh, foundational areas in languages, software development, cybersecurity, computer vision, robotics, and a lot of exciting areas like that. Uh, I also get to create opportunities for new people to join the school and to be the best version of themselves. So a lot of my work in the leadership role is around is, is about the people. And this includes recruitment, looking after our tenure track program and our career development, our professional development program as well. Uh, I've also had the opportunity to start some brand new programs for areas that I thought were in need of particular attention. And one example is during COVID, um, we all experienced, you know, a lot of a shutdown and we're not accessing our labs and wondering what we can do. And I took the opportunity to develop a program called the Jubilee Joint Fellowship Program, which supports researchers working right at the interface between science, uh, comp computer science and some other domain, uh, where they're solving grand challenges in their domain, but also where they're using that domain knowledge to inform new types of computer science as well. And five of them were supported across different areas in um, in 2021. Uh, I'm also uh, chairing the Pioneering Women program, which has a combination of scholarships and lectureships and fellowships to support women entering the field of computing and um, make sure that they're successful throughout their career with us. And of course, one of my other roles as deputy director is to look after computing facilities for our school. As you can imagine, a school of computer science needs to have quite extensive computer facilities. And well, that's always been a favorite thing of mine. So I look after the facilities for the school, looking at ways that we can diversify our pipeline of resources to get through tough times like in COVID where we couldn't actually order any new equipment. Uh, and also how we can be more energy efficient because 
because uh, computing uses up an enormous amount of energy. And um, if that's not enough, Amanda, you're, you're also editor-in-chief of the IOP journal Nano Futures. Can, can you tell us a bit uh, about this journal? What are its aims? Yes, thanks, Hamish. Uh, that's great because that's where a lot of my passions all get to come together. And I learn more about the cutting edge of nanoscience and technology, which is my own research area in computational science. So the Nano Futures Journal publishes innovative, urgent work that reflects diverse and multidisciplinary fields in nanoscience and brings together researchers from a lot of the areas that I experience in my day-to-day work in the School of Computing, from physics, chemistry, biomedicine, materials, engineering, and also people that work extensively in industry. Uh, This covers biotechnology, quantum nanomaterials phenomenon, nanoenergy, nanoelectronics, low-dimensional materials, and my favourite, computational nanomaterials design. In each case, what differentiates this journal from our sister journal, Nanotechnology, and other journals in the nanoscience area is that NanoFutures is specifically forward-looking and publishes work that anticipates to set a new direction in emerging fields uh, with the expectation that these are the important areas that will have long-term scientific value and impact. You mentioned uh, the, the future, looking towards the future. It must be a very exciting time for uh, people doing research in, in machine learning. Uh, the technology is finding so many different uses. And, you know, it's even in the headlines. I was listening to uh, to BBC Radio 4 this morning. And uh, once again, they were talking about uh, the implications of, uh, of uh, artificial intelligence on society. What new applications of machine learning are you looking forward to in your fields of research? Mm-hmm. Well, probably some of the ones you're already hearing about this morning. While there are risks associated with AI, there's also enormous opportunity, and I think the generative AI is going to be particularly important in the coming years for science, Uh, not just my area of science but many areas of science, uh, provided we can come over some of the issues with it hallucinating. But no matter what area of science we're in, whether we're doing computation or whether we're doing experiments, we're all at the moment in a position where we're suffering under a number of restrictions. We're restricted by the time we have, by the money, the resources, the equipment we have access to. And what this means is that scientists are compromising our science to fit these limitations rather than focusing on overcoming them. And I really believe that the infrastructure shouldn't dictate what we do. It It should really be the other way around. I think generative AI actually has come at the right time to enable us to finally overcome some of these problems because it has a lot of potential to be able to fill in the gaps and provide us with an idea of what science we could have done if we had have had those resources and and that we couldn't do for whatever reason. Um, It could enable us to get basically get more by doing less and avoiding some of the pitfalls like selection bias. That is a really big problem when applying machine learning to science data sets. There's a lot more work that needs to go into this area to ensure that generative methods are producing meaningful science, not hallucinations. Uh, And this is particularly important if they're going to form the foundation for large pre-trained models. But I think this is going to be a really exciting era of science where we're working collaboratively with AI rather than it just performing a task for us. 
Well, that's great. Thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast, Amanda. It sounds like you've got a, a, an amazing research program there in Canberra. And um, th- uh, thanks again for talking about it with us. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. That was Amanda Barnard of the Australian National University. And she's also editor-in-chief of the journal NanoFutures, which you can find on the IOP Science website. Up next is Physics World's medical physics expert, Tammy Freeman, and she's in conversation with the inventor of an implant that could help regulate the blood pressure of people with spinal cord injuries. Spinal cord injuries can impact or completely eliminate a person's ability to control movement or feel sensations. A less well-known consequence, which affects over 90% of people with such injuries, is the inability to regulate blood pressure. This can result in dizziness, nausea, fainting, or in some cases can keep a person completely bedridden. Aiming to solve this problem is Jordan Square from EPFL, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. Jordan has developed an implant that delivers electrical stimulation to spinal neurons to treat dangerously low blood pressure. The significance of this work is highlighted by his recent award of the 2023 Bioinnovation Institute and Science Prize for Innovation. I'm speaking to Jordan to find out more about this new therapy. Hello, Jordan, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So first of all, can you briefly explain the clinical problem that you were aiming to solve? Yeah, absolutely. So people with spinal cord injuries, specifically um, severe ones or ones that are very high up in the neck, and in addition to other people with different neurodegenerative disorders like multiple system atrophy and Parkinson's disease, suffer from very unstable blood pressure. This means that when they sit up in the morning, instead of all of the blood vessels constricting as they should to keep the blood going up to the brain and the heart, the blood starts to pool down and gravity takes its toll. And this has really significant consequences, not only for their health, but just for their day-to-day life and being able to sit up and not feel dizzy and nauseous. Um, and this is a condition that's called orthostatic hypotension. Okay, so you've developed this neurostimulation implant. How does this actually work to control a person's blood pressure? So we did a lot of experiments in animal models, um, which effectively allowed us to figure out that there's a very specific spot of the spinal cord in the what's called the lower thoracic spinal cord. So this would be kind of um, where the ribs are ending approximately. And this part of the spinal cord just so happens to control most of the blood vessels that are in the abdomen. So this is all of the ones in the gut. And this is where generally approximately 30% of our blood volume would be at any given time. And so because we can stimulate that part of the spinal cord, which then stimulates these blood vessels to constrict, we can control that, you know, approximately 30% of the blood volume. And this has a very, very big effect on blood pressure. So we're kind of hijacking the system. 
After you initially published your findings, I gather that neurologists at a local hospital asked to test your implant to treat a patient in their care. So can you tell us a bit about this case? Absolutely. So um, one of the neurosurgeons um, that we work with, uh, who's also the head of the, the center, this research was done in uh, Jocelyn Block, the, the neurologist came to her and, and we started to discuss a, a patient under their care who suffered from quite severe multiple system atrophy. So this is a neurodegenerative disorder that's very well known to have very severe orthostatic hypotension. And so our original publication was in people with spinal cord injury. So this is slightly different, but we thought that maybe the same principles would apply and so after they contacted us, we did a few experiments in the lab to see if it might be reasonable that it would work. And when those results came back positive, because her condition was so severe, she was bedridden, unable to even sit up at all, unable to participate in life, despite being cognitively very intact, we decided to move forward and, and, and Jocelyn um, did the surgery and we implanted the system. And I think it, you know, we can say quite confidently, it, it changed her life. She was able to um, to sit up and she was actually even able to walk for hundreds of meters, something that she wasn't able to do before. Excellent. So, I mean, is it quite a large surgical procedure? Is it quite a big deal to get the implant put in? So it's, it is a surgery with, which comes with uh, any, the risks of any, any surgery, but this is a surgery that is fairly routine for neurosurgeons to do. It's very commonly done. It's a very similar, almost identical procedure to that done to treat things like neuropathic pain. And so this is what would be considered a, a low risk procedure. Okay. And has your device been tested in a, a clinical trial yet? So this entire system and all of the patents related to this work have been um, uh, licensed to Onward Medical, which was a startup company that originally came out of the lab of Gregoire Cortin, who is also the uh, head of the center that I'm working in. And this uh, company is now moving this forward into clinical trials um, and to eventual quick commercialization. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask if, if commercialization is going ahead, what sort of time scale do you think that could be on? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, for commercialization, the, the, the step that has to come before that is these clinical trials. And so, to execute these large-scale multi-center clinical trials is obviously a, a big undertaking. And so, um, we are working with the company and they are, are moving forward, you know, as fast as we can with this. And so, we are, we're very much hoping to start these trials within the year. And so we would hope to have the conclusion of those trials and a potential move towards FDA approval um, in the coming two to three years. You were recently awarded an innovation prize from the Bioinnovation Institute and the journal Science. So what's the significance of this award to you? Why do you think you, you were chosen as this year's winner? Well, I mean, it's obviously a huge honor to win an award like this. And I think the thing that is, is most exciting to me is just the recognition that this work is important. When we think of people with paralysis, I think what most people's minds immediately go to is, is the recovery of walking, getting people up and out of their chairs and walking again. And I think the recognition of this work on, on blood pressure and these, the impact this has on people's quality of life in this quite severe medical condition 
I think it's really exciting to see their recognition for that work and see it move forward um, on on this kind of um, kind of high profile um, award. So I think it's really exciting. And this is something. I mean, you've been working in this area since your PhD, so you've been working in this for a while. Yeah, absolutely. I started my PhD um, working in in autonomic control, blood pressure control in people with spinal cord injury. And so I've been in this field for uh, almost a decade now. And so it's, it's very exciting to see, um, to see a treatment moving forward in this area that um, is very, very needed. Excellent. So finally, I mean, I mean, what's next? What are you actually working on now? What are you looking to do in the future? So I, I think one of the things that's been very clear through working in this field over the past decade and, and working on this work and seeing this move all the way from doing mechanistic work in animals to to clinical trials and commercialization is is that we need to think about the next big step in this, in this uh, line of work for these people who have spinal cord injuries. And, and I think the next big problem that we now have the technology to begin to tackle is to repair the cord, is to repair the injured spinal cord and working on biological strategies to do that. And so I think that's, that's the next big step and that's what we're going to keep working on now. Excellent. Well, I mean, as you say, it's, it's really fascinating to see these things come from sort of laboratory experiments um, and hopefully for the, for the benefit of, of patients in the clinic. So that's great. Well, thanks very much for speaking to us today. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Amanda Barnard, Jordan Square, and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. This podcast is brought to you by ISEG. High voltage power supplies made by ISEG means high voltage, exactly. For more information, please visit the ISEG website at iseg-hv.com. We'll be back again next week when I'll be chatting with an X-ray astronomer about the challenges and opportunities associated with observing the cosmos using telescopes on satellites. Physics World